Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on an on and ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Jonathan Becker. Jonathan is the founder and president of Thrive Digital and a general partner at Occasional Ventures. 
Thrive has overseen over $3.5 billion in paid customer acquisition ad spend since being founded in 2012. They focus on helping companies grow their business through paid customer acquisition, campaigns, analytics, creative services, and data science. They've worked with some of the largest companies in the world and specialize in e-commerce, lead gen, user acquisition, and brand marketing. In this episode, we discuss how Jonathan founded Thrive, landing Lululemon as a client early on, how he structured Thrive differently from other agencies, how he met the founder of Uber in the back of a cab and landed them as a client, the biggest misconceptions around paid growth, running experiments with marketing, keeping up with different marketing platforms, would he start Thrive today, his investing style with occasional ventures, and transitioning from CEO to chairman. Please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Becker. Jonathan, I'd like to start with your time at the beginning of SEO. What interested you in SEO? I know you spent time at BCIT. You worked at a marketing firm and Cymax doing SEO. Um, what really interested you in the space just to even get started? I really did your homework here. Um, well, I started in SEO at a time when SEO had been kind of this thriving channel, if you will, from within the marketing community for probably almost 10 years ahead of my, you know, beginning in it. Um, I started out as a web developer, basically. I was building websites back then out of like Dreamweaver and Joomla, like the really early stuff, WordPress, whatever it may be. And I was really fascinated by how you could basically tweak, you know, the, the front end of a website, if you will, to uh, magnify its visibility in search results. And so um, this became not really only a fascination for me, but an obsession. And ultimately, you know, uh, resulted in me for several years, really being a practitioner of SEO and holding a few different roles uh, at different companies where I was like, driving that forward for them, but then also uh, kind of led to a series of opportunities that resulted in me starting Thrive, my agency. What led you to start your own agency? Was there just a tipping point there of, hey, like, I'm really good at this. Like, I could do this solo. I could I could make more money doing it solo. Like, what was that tipping point? Did you set out, hey, I want to start a big company, a firm, and, and do this full time? Or was it more, hey, I, I, even from a solo perspective, this makes sense? Came at this from being very empty the point of being very ambitious. So, uh, you know, early on when I was like 17, 18, I was like throwing events and I started a series of businesses. And actually by the time I had my first role within an organization, you know, as the head of SEO, let's call it, I had actually made up my mind that I didn't want to start a company anymore because companies are, you know, stressful and it's a pain in a lot of ways. And as, as exciting as it is, I had experienced both success and failure as an entrepreneur. And I was kind of like, it's nice to leave my desk at 4.59 and like, like park my thoughts at work and then just go home and live my life, I think. I would call myself a reluctant entrant into the agency world. And I certainly didn't think ever like, hey, I'm doing this for someone else. I should just go do it for myself. What happened was, uh, as it turns out, a number of people felt that I was very good at what I was doing, you know, in that, uh, in that time. 
uh, I got asked to do a bunch of speaking gigs at universities and colleges, um, you know, technical schools and stuff. I even taught at one point. Um, and slowly I just started getting asked uh, for services. People would be like, hey, great talk. Like, do you freelance? And so I said no to a lot of those people. Um, but because of a relationship that I had had um, from my days actually working at an agency, at one point, it was kind of, you know, little lemon knocking at my door asking like, hey, can you help us uh, with both organic search and some paid search and eventually paid social. Uh, and I had to take that opportunity pretty seriously. So here we have, you know, a very, even back then, this is like 14 years ago, um, a really big, you know, potential client that was doing something really interesting and had wonderful people, you know, working in-house there and it seemed like an opportunity that was kind of too good to pass up and so it's a bit of a long story but i reluctantly entered you know the agency world had coming from a place where i really didn't like agencies i had worked in-house at an agency and great people but like organizationally i i saw how things could break down quite easily and then in an in-house role i worked with agencies and i just thought they were kind of like big dumb and lazy and so uh, when it came time to provide services, I couldn't really say that it was an agency yet. It was really me as an army of one. And then eventually the co-founder of Thrive, Brent MacArthur. But, um, you know, we just basically decided to organize the company in a way that went against the reasons we felt these organizations that provide services become kind of slow and innovative. What's that Lululemon deal was that daunting at the time were you were you just very confident in your abilities you saw the gap you knew hey like this is going to be successful if i do abc or was it a little bit daunting hey this huge brand maybe maybe wasn't as big at that time but still quite big what was that like i'm always humbled by these opportunities to work with the brands that we have in our day-to-day -day lives you know go past the exterior to the inside and see the inner workings and all these things that go on. So in a sense, I was in awe of the fact that they picked me and there was this opportunity and I loved what they were doing and I thought it was super cool. So there's that piece. But then when it came to the work itself, I was always really confident that, you know, basically, if you will, what I was selling were things that I could fulfill upon. I, in my head, I thought that I was the best person for this in North America, whether that was the case or not. But I think having that confidence is really important. Um, you know, side note, confidence developed over a long period of time. So by the time I get that, you know, opportunity with Lulu, number one, I've worked with them before. So it's not like a cold call that they're making to me. It was specific folks, you know, there that were like, hey, there might be this opportunity. Um, I had also been a practitioner of uh, search engine optimization. And at that point, you know, Google, what was then called Google AdWords. And so, and it really felt like I knew my way around the block. And so I was kind of very confident. And then when I bring on Brad, you know, he's a genius and just super effective at, uh, you know, a number of different things. And so I felt that together we were just kind of this unstoppable duo. And it, you know, the, whether I was right or wrong, I guess, maybe is evidenced by like the way that the company ended up growing and some of the pretty incredible projects that we've had an opportunity to support uh, over the last 13 years. You mentioned agencies maybe being a bit slow just with like how they're, they're structured. 
what were some different things that you wanted to do with Thrive and, and you ultimately did as you scaled the team? Was there just was it just small process changes? Was it implementing more technology? What were some things that you felt made it a better, you know, it's maybe still an agency, but like a better agency model? So any organization as it grows, in my opinion, actually requires bureaucracy or administration or whatever, you know, process, if you will, to function. Um, but process is the bare minimum, not like the peak standard, right? So when I think about process, the process is there as a bare minimum and is intended to be smashed open and broken to pieces and reinvented by whoever's creative and bold enough to do that. Um, however, in some organizations, there tends to be a bit of a set forget, you know, uh, mentality around like different corners of the company. And so, you know, my experience, um, working with other agencies was that they were number one, very slow and not responsive. Oftentimes we had the wrong people on the account. Oftentimes there would be like an account manager in the way. So. They, are, they were there to, you know, manage the relationship with me and keep me happy, but couldn't really directly speak about the work. So that would cause broken telephone, a number of things like that. So when, you know, fast forward, it's my turn, I guess, reluctantly to start an agency. We, there were a couple things that I think um, were innate to us because of our size and the fact that, you know, initially it's two people. Um, working out of like a sweaty apartment. My old apartment, basically, we worked out of a walk-in closet. So there's no process. It's just us talking. You know, we're taking all the calls together. We're servicing all the clients together. We're going to all the meetings together. There were like very few things that we did separately. So like we have total alignment and it's easy to be more nimble than these larger organizations. Um, but then there's other stuff too. So like early on, Thrive didn't have account managers for the reasons that I just mentioned. We wanted you, the client, to be able to speak directly to the folks who do the work as opposed to having like someone in the way who's no, 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 like, I don't know the answer. I'm going to have to talk to the specialist, you know, who did this and you get like the, a response three days later to a question you never asked. Okay. Um, other things too, like we purposely made uh, our engagement structure from like a contractual point of view month to month because we were like, we know we're really good. Uh, if you work with us, you should be able to fire us if you don't want to work with us. Like if we disappoint you, you shouldn't be locked into a 12 month contract. And so it's good for the client because they have the peace of mind knowing that they can test out working with us and it's a little bit low lift for them. They don't have to like, you know, worry about like, you know, oh, if I don't like them, I'm stuck with them for 12 months. And then psychologically, as we start building our team and Thrive starts growing, Everyone in the office kind of knew that we could be fired by any client at any moment every month. And it became this like psychologically motivating factor for better or for worse. So it like created um, a pressure on us that drove these projects forward and allowed us to be proactive and not reactive to the work we were doing. And so there were a number of different things, but those were a couple of them that really like made us a little bit more dangerous than some of the bigger organizations we were coming up against for work. On that thread of Lulu, you had another really interesting client early on, Uber. And I know you had shared this story in our in our pre-chat and chatted a bit about it on Lenny's podcast, but would love to hear a bit of that backstory of how you landed Uber as a client. I know there's an interesting story there with like a referral program hack and uh, bumping into one of the founders. 
I met the founder of Uber about 12 years ago, I think at this point. I actually can't remember precisely what the year was, but essentially, actually it was 2013. So 2013, I'm in Long Beach, California at a conference and I was at a dinner with a couple of friends that got invited, but I didn't know anybody at the dinner. And after the dinner, there was basically a party that everybody was going to. It was some venture capitalist yacht that he was like throwing an impromptu kind of like party out on it. So I had never did anything like that at the time. After the dinner, everybody kind of hops into, you know, cars or taxis and I flat uh, a yellow cap down and as I get into it, I, you know, had a tap on the shoulder and the person was kind of like, Hey, I think we're going to the same place. Can I hop in with you? And I was like, of course, like my name's Jonathan. I'm from Vancouver. Um, I run, you know, this tiny little agency at the time. And he was like, Oh, that's cool. Like I'm Garrett I'm from Calgary and I founded Uber. And I knew, I knew who Garrett was once he mentioned his name, because he had founded stumble upon ahead of time. And I was like a huge fan of the whole social bookmarking, you know, era and trend and, and he was kind of like a hero to me and so um, if i back up a little bit so here i am you know before i back up we're sitting in the back of the cab together um and i have a million you know thoughts racing through my mind kind of like what do i talk to this guy about and here i am and i'm running an agency and uber had actually recently launched in vancouver and to make a really long story short when you sign up to uber you get a referral code Back then, uh, you know, you could use any name you wanted, essentially, when you signed up. And so I called myself Sign Up Now, and my referral URL, like literally like the copy and paste like link that I would send to people was uber.com slash sign up now, because that was my first and last name. <laughs> and so I basically was able to, you know, get this to break organically. And then I used like free, you know, Google AdWords credits that we were getting from Google because we were an agency and a Google partner at the time, basically bid on Uber's branded keywords and drived a ton of traffic to my confusingly similar landing page uh, with Uber's actual, you know, homepage type thing. And so I, you know, we made like tens of thousands of dollars, if not like a hundred grand, probably in free Uber credits this way. And by the time I meet Garrett and my mind is racing, oh, you know, what do I talk to this guy about? I just was like, hey, man, like, you know, this uh, is happening. This is how I'm doing it. I'm not adding any value and um, you should probably do something about this. And so it piqued his interest and, you know, it resulted, you know, in us basically eventually landing Uber. They were kind of like, it's like hiring uh a hacker to do security for your, you know, web-based company. In this case, they hired essentially a spammer to start to spin their marketing. And that was me. And so that kicked off a 10-year relationship with Uber. That was amazing. Uh, we did a lot of cool stuff for them. We also, in process, you know, uh, in the process of doing that, launched them all around the world in every market through China, India, other parts of Asia, all over Europe, all over Latin America, all through North America. Uh, and this is like when my company was like, you know, seven or eight people. It started that, but it really like pushed us here. Uber was a very demanding client uh, in, in a positive way, like pressure yields grow. And so it kind of resulted in us becoming a fiercely competitive competitor to large American agencies that did performance marketing where normally we wouldn't have had a seat at the table, kind of put us on the map.
you mentioned there, you know, Uber just, you know, like a demanding client and really helping drive the organization. I'm also curious if, you know, having a big client is great, but I would I would assume something like Uber with their focus on growth and multiple markets and doing unique things. Really, did that help give you an edge or just like, you know, you're working. I'm trying hard to like clarify the question, but I guess like the main thing would be, I, I don't know if every client is exactly the same. Some might maybe even make you give you more of an edge because they're willing to do something a bit mm. different compared to someone else. In 2013, 2014, 2015, Uber becomes the boogeyman in tech circles. Like everybody, you know, they're getting more kind of negative press and good press by they were notorious because of that. And so when people introduced us as Uber's agency, an eyebrow would raise and they'd be like, wait a minute, like, who are these guys? So if nothing else, he gave us, as I put it, a seat at the table. People would give us the time of day. We could like open doors, you know, because we had that relationship, I would say. But to your point, um, it made us forced us to grow up really fast. It really catalyzed our expertise because we quickly realized how fast we're moving and, and what we were going to do, we were going to need to do to keep up if we wanted to retain their business. And like, you know, pretty much on day one, it becomes Thrive's biggest client. Um, we were still working with Lululemon at that point. We were working with that, you know, Laurie Jobs, um, Steve Jobs' wife. I had a big project with her for a long time, but uh, those are all pretty incredible, you know, stories and opportunities. But uh, Uber was unique, uh, and and so it, it, I think it just leveled up our sophistication. And then because we had done this before and we had run a global project with a pretty big spend, you know, that was complex and doing, you know, all kinds of different styles of marketing them through different paid acquisition channels, um, helping them think about attribution, reporting, validation, measurement, all these things. It just really it forced us to um, probably grow into a more serious you know, competitor on the agency landscape than we might have otherwise uh, got to. We went to probably where we were going, but faster. I'm curious, what does paid growth mean to you I feel like maybe when you originally started Thrive, uh, paid growth was maybe more nascent than it is now. And I feel like every company has someone in paid growth now. Everyone has a paid growth strategy. What does it mean to you? And what are some maybe misconceptions or maybe people that are, are using that in the wrong way? The biggest misconception, I think, is that you can kind of just hire one person in that department and they'll like, teach you something you haven't seen before. So sometimes that can happen anecdotally, but um, I would use the analogy here as, you know, building a finance team almost. So if you think about a finance team, you most people realize there's a bookkeeper on that team, there's an accountant on that team, there's a finance analyst, there might even be a CFO, there could be a number of other types of roles. Uh, and it makes sense to build out a department that contains, you know, those folks at a certain scale. Um, marketing in general works the same way. So you ask like, what is paid growth to me? So, you know, growth marketing is a large segment of digital marketing, let's call it. Um, it it's kind of an interchangeable term. Like you could really place like anything, you know, under that bucket, but typically people are referring to digital channels. And the paid acquisition is 
you know, a smaller subset growth marketing, if you want to look at it that way. But to my, you know, what I was saying a moment ago is that style of marketing is filled with different channels, different skill sets. And so there's no like, you know, one size fits all the approach. There's no um, one person who can wear all those hats typically. And that's what people often get wrong. Uh, when they make their first hire, it's not an end point. It's a starting point. It's almost like they're beginning to build, you know, a team that will ultimately drive their business forward from a marketing operations point of view, but it can take a really long time to get that right. And so um, sometimes people come to us and they assume, you know, we have all the answers, but really what we do is uh, put infrastructure and process in place, the good kind of process, not the bad kind of process, um, and do a lot of experimentation to unpack what will ultimately work for them. Um, there's frequent um, misconceptions, I guess, around, you know, how quickly that happens or whether we have some sort of magic button we can press that will, you know, make things work really, really well, simply because we had success in the past with some pretty incredible companies. What have you learned about experimenting? What's a good way to experiment? What's not a great way? Is it when you have too many variables and you just don't really know what led to success with the experiment? Uh, what's worked really well for you? If you think about like scientific experimentation, it's, it comes down to isolating variables so you can have a thesis and really test the thesis. And then also being aware of like, various biases that you might have when you're reviewing the result. And so like, I'm not a scientist, but you know, that's my cursory understanding of like a true, the true scientific method. And it goes deeper than that. Of course, then there's a peer review process and all of this. Um, uh, a lot of that doesn't happen properly in a quote test environment in marketing. And so you have, uh, people who are subject to their own biases. Uh, you rarely get a proper thesis. Uh, you rarely even properly get like documentation around like what is being tested and then subsequently what the results were. And so the results, unfortunately, end up kind of living in someone's head. And if they leave your organization or are absent for a period of time, all of that knowledge walks out the door with them. And so, um, so you know, at a basic level, I would say that it is great to be inquisitive in terms of testing in marketing. And so I'm not even talking about paid acquisition, just like, you know, answering questions like, does this work? Does this work better than this? Um, how much can we sell X, Y, and Z, you know, before we hit a diminishing rate of return, et cetera. So just being curious uh, is a good thing. Um, but frankly, doing, some, you know, research on how to properly set up like an AB test or multivariate test is not a bad idea. And, and even just like having very basic documentation around like what the problem was, what your hypothesis is, what the test is, how it's structured and listing off a couple biases that you might encounter, you know, as you're reviewing things is a good process to run through if you want validity in your result, if that makes sense. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question there or if I went on a bit of a tangent, but, um, that's kind of how I think about, you know, testing in an environment where people are doing it a little bit for the first time. I love that. How do you think paid growth has really changed from the early 2010s to today in 2023? I'm sure it's changed a thousand different ways, but is there a 
a few major things that have shifted? So number one, it used to be a lot more manual. So you needed a rocket scientist to run, you know, what was then called Google AdWords, that is now Google Ads, uh, what is now Meta and is, you know, was then called Facebook Ads. They were just very, very high maintenance. And so a lot of the work has ultimately been done on those platforms has resulted in automation. And uh, that is a huge change. Like we just have fewer levers, you know, these days than we did back then. Uh, so your your question was, you know, what has changed the most, I think, and what was the second part of the question? What you think has changed the most, um, and I guess maybe what hasn't changed at all or has yeah. changed very minimally. I've spoken about this before too, but I think there's a misconception these that it was like easy back in the day. And, and it's just like not the case. It was always very, very hard. But I think that with the, you know, current generation of organizations that are investing in, in paid media and these channels, the problems are just different that we're facing these days. And so I talked about automation, you know, um, actually being a useful trend, I think, for the industry. But one thing that's happened is with the advent of privacy and privacy legislation and some of the stuff that you see in the news around Facebook, which is all really good. Like it's, it's definitely necessary for the industry to, you know, have guardrails and uh, controls and, and hopefully more regulation around it. Uh, but as it has taken shape, the technology that we have around measurement has actually got worse. And so, so we find ourselves in this funny place where there's a whole subset of growth marketing, you know, as you put it, called performance marketing. And the, the you know, intent behind calling for, you know, this form of digital marketing performance marketing uh, back in the day was that the expectation was that things could be measured properly. It was like very different than traditional media because theoretically you could like measure the exact ROI on what you were doing, which never was actually possible, but people thought it was. Um, so, you know, these days, uh, the tools to do that are just worse. Like we're in a world now where cookies are being deprecated and that was a big part of, you know, how tracking work, uh, cookie-based tracking, um, attribution, uh, is being stripped out of platforms that people used to use like Google analytics. We now have GA4. Um, and you know, it, it feels really like Google's moving to a place where they want Google analytics to be a tool that helps you use Google ads better and not much else type thing. And, uh, those are some of the changes, but I think that like, you know, in my time, um, running, you know, my agency business, I've seen two types of agency, the ones that can adapt. And they're still with us and they probably change. Maybe they get bought or amalgamated or rolled up or whatever. Some of them have stayed independent, like thrive. And then the other type of agency, which just dies because they can, you know, they, they invest too heavily into one way of doing things. They don't see a curveball, and it kind of blows up in their face. So, um, most of our competitors over the years, you know, when we started just don't exist anymore. Uh, whereas we've stuck around because. We seem to be good at managing change and anticipating change. And I think that's like really important when you're brought on to uh, a project as a service partner. On that thread of change, how do you 
keep up with different platforms, right? So like Google's always been there. Uh, Meta's been around for a long time, but you know, TikTok is relatively new. So how do you really know, hey, this kind of social platform or this channel is more of a trend, it's going to rise and potentially fall quite quickly versus, hey, this is like a fundamental shift in how, you know, we're going to be doing marketing. How do you keep that edge? At the end of the day, these days, whether it's TikTok or or Twitter or Pinterest, I'm naming different channels that have launched ads and at, at one point or another had the spotlight on them. Uh, and then there's like the more, you know, uh, boring ones that have just always been around. It feels like, like Google and Bing and, you know, the meta and all of these things. And I just see it all as a world of clicks and impressions, to be frank. And so, you know, the way we look at this is what are the economics that need to be achieved and met in order for this campaign to be profitable for this client? And then which, you know, channels and campaign types conform to those marketing economics? And where can we find more and more of that inventory, if you will? And um, there's a question that there are nuances to one platform versus the other. Like TikTok is a very different channel than Google search or YouTube or programmatic or, you know, buying inventory on podcasts or whatever it is. Um, Different channels also have, uh, we have the same expectations around like, you know, how we're supposed to be able to measure something. Uh, but some channels are really good at giving you that information and some channels are less good. Like TikTok, for instance, doesn't do a great job of attribution at the moment. I think they're getting better, but it's just kind of not there yet. And so we think TikTok is a powerful platform and there's a huge opportunity there, but you are more likely to be able to spend, measure or revenue and have control over that function if you currently place dollars in the Google ecosystem or the Facebook ecosystem than TikTok. I think that might change, by the way. But for now, that's the way it kind of works. And so I think that, you know, in general, to just kind of polish off this question, um, it's really important to get too caught up in like the shiny object in our industry there's always a company that's like you know we've solved this and it's like a new capability and everybody's like oh my god you know this company oh my god and then you'd like by two years later you never hear about them anymore um, i've seen so many channels come and go out of our industry very few of them work really well across the deep breadth of client and uh, but you know, there you know, TikTok is indisputable in its growth. Amazon is indisputable in its growth. Um, programmatic is really interesting these days, whereas it used to be less interesting. Um, and then you know, Google and Facebook, I think, are still doing a really good job despite all the setbacks that they faced. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of my take on. I'd be curious your thoughts on, you know, let's say you're you're an Uber and you've raised a ton of money or you're Lulu and you're a very profitable large business. What if you're, you know, relatively new, you're a startup, potentially even bootstrapped, or maybe you just raised a little bit of money? What would be some really good, do, do you think paid, search, uh, paid growth is a good avenue? Should they be focusing more on organic search? Are there certain levers or should you focus on certain platforms? Obviously, it's a very kind of loaded and big question, but like, are there some kind of basic principles, maybe a more bootstrapped or startup should 
approach this? Yeah, I think so. I think of this in terms of like the marketing mix and really like what's achievable in the near term and the long term. And and the most important thing to think about here is there's no like silver bullet or one size fits all approach that that will work for you. So just because you know we get a bunch of paid for Uber and it worked really well doesn't mean that you know your your sign printing business will do like super well with YouTube or something like that. Like maybe it will. I don't know, but. You got to think about marketing kind of the way that I described, like building out a department here as like a starting point. Um, you're experimenting. You probably will fail a lot up front. Um, and then ultimately you'll find some things that work and expand out of them. So the most important thing is like, despite the fact that I've managed, my company has managed billions and billions and billions of dollars in paid, is that necessarily the best place to always start with marketing? No, probably not. You know, I think that there are, you have to think about the marketing mix in terms of like, what has the highest likelihood of working? It doesn't mean it's going to work, but like, if you do paid search, does every other company do paid search that is paid? Like, is that, does it have a high likelihood of working or should you start with email marketing? Um, or should you start with content and SEO or social media marketing or, you know, podcast inventory, whenever it is. And um, I would say that like, you know, paid is a, seems to be something that is very manageable in the short term for a lot of early stage companies, because there's a lot of people out there that seem to be, you know, able to help stand up a strong marketing campaign so that human capital is available. Uh, there's enough automation these days where you no longer necessarily need a rocket scientist to get started, they think. Um, and you can also, in relative terms, it can be a light investment. So if I say, hey, you know, my startup, we're going to go big and I, I'm going to start launching by buying Super Bowl ads, which others have done, by the way. There's like all kinds of like venture back companies that on like year two were buying Super Bowl ads. Um, that's really expensive, right? So like there's only a small population of companies that will be able to access that form of marketing in that particular audience. Whereas anyone can enter the search auction on Google ads with 10 bucks. You, you won't get much, but you'll start to get a few clicks. Right. And so, um, so I think that it's just like, you know, easily addressable channels in the short term, but the long tail of this is that these channels can take years to and months to scale, and it does not work for everybody. And so it's just the reality of not only paid, paid is a microcosm of marketing in general and marketing just doesn't always work. It doesn't mean that marketing will never work for your business, but it might mean that your approach is wrong right now, or that at this point in time, you know, there's not enough awareness of like problem that you're solving for there to be a market, et cetera, et cetera. Have you seen any trend? I don't know if this is kind of off topic but from you know it's like lots of creator brands out there or brands will really tap into kind of influencers or you know things that have a large following to kind of kickstart things do you see value in doing that if you're kind of creating your own product or you know, is it really that you really want to establish your own channels your own proprietary space i guess there's probably benefits and downsides to each but have you seen any one do that successfully. So I think that there's huge value in cultivating an audience, whether you do that through paid or you do that through, you know, 
yourself or influencer marketing or different types of social marketing. Um, there's no question. That's why brands you know, historically have used celebrities um, to promote their brands because the expectation is that the celebrity has an audience and a following. It's kind of the old school version of influencer marketing, right? But like these like movie stars that, you know, become the face of your toothpaste or something like that. Um, people inherently trust them, follow them because of whatever reason. And so you're essentially buying their, their audience in a weird way. Uh, so that kind of stuff is real. And yeah, these days, you know, we kind of live in a place where you don't have to be a movie star or a TV star to, you know, be famous at this point, like YouTube and Patreon and a myriad of different social platforms. TikTok is a great example. Snap, like a lot of people have really figured out how to build their own little media empire or big media empire, um, you know, by, by cultivating a, a following on these types of platforms. And further to that, a lot of these folks are actually business people and they're super smart and they'll be like, my product, my audience would benefit from this product. And so you see them launching product-based businesses or services, um, you know, that seem to uh, sell well into those audiences. And then maybe they actually cross the divide and, you know, uh, go into traditional media, but they did it backwards, which is super fascinating that the tables have been turned a little bit. If you were to rewind and with all of your kind of experience and hindsight and, and where the, the market is today, w would you start Thrive today? If, if you would, how would that look? At my core, I'm an entrepreneur and I love, you know, running businesses. I would say that like anytime, you know, historically that I've seen a good opportunity to start business, I take it. Uh, the conditions were definitely right when I started Thrive though. But I want to add that, you know, the, like, you know, the pay-per-click, like paid search, which was like the most important, you know, channel in paid acquisition at the time, um, there were like loads of pay-per-click agencies already. So, you know, the, the it, it's not like we were first, we were 10 years late into the industry, right? Their SEO existed for probably the better part of a decade. Paid search, you know, was part of that too. Um, and so the conditions were just kind of, you know, right place, right time in terms of me having the skills that I did, me partnering with Brent, uh, who had his set of skills. And we were both, you know, as I mentioned earlier, really confident and strong, I think, in what we did. Um, us having near-term opportunities with clients, um, you know, a number of different things just kind of went right. And also, you know, this is a time when that industry is growing like crazy. And so uh, you know, I remember kind of like going to conferences at that point, meeting business owners, explaining what I did. And they were like, how do we get started in that? We've never done it before. Whereas now everybody has been doing it and everybody does it. And so it's just more of a mature market. So, um, would I start thriving in today? Absolutely. We're still very, you know, we're very relevant in the market. We're super competitive. We're bigger than we've ever been. And it seems like our clients need us in more ways than they ever had, uh, which is interesting. I think it would be hard to start an organization that is that goes this deep and wide on uh, the areas of paid acquisition. You know, like we were able to focus on just a couple things at first and do them exceedingly well, and then essentially 
you know, be really good at addressing the changes over time that brought us to the point where we're like the McKinsey of, you know, paid acquisition at this stage. But, uh, it, you know, it would, would we be able to do that today? Maybe we could start doing it, but uh, it wouldn't happen overnight. I'd love to chat about occasional ventures. What do you look to invest in? What types of businesses or, or founders, if you look, whatever way you look at that. And I know you've invested in Rob from Outway, who was a great previous guest on the pod, and AeroPress, which I love yeah. using for my coffee. But I also like saw SpaceX and other things there. So is it just, hey, this is interesting. I want to invest in this? Rewinding a little bit. Um... I've been interested and fascinating at this concept of investing for a really long time. My, my, one of my good friends is Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, I don't know if he's been on this on your podcast before, but, um, when you sit down with that guy, he just talks about like investing and all he has a brilliant, you know, mind and a really unique way of looking at things. And he was kind of like, you know, if you're interested in this, you should read this book about Charlie Munger and this book about Warren Buffett and this book about value investing and like this book by this hedge fund guy who talks about like deals that he did and how he quantified them and all this stuff. So I always get like really great, you know, reading material of that guy. Um, and it became kind of like an armchair hobby for me. So whereas he, you know, started out in agency land and kind of created tiny and ultimately, you know, built this investment empire, which is now a public company. Um, for me, it was more of like an armchair, you know, hobby. And it still remains that today. So reasons why I like investing, the idea of investing capital into things and having it grow is fascinating to me. And the the idea of being able to get to a place where you see things in a way where you can repeat that process over and over again is fascinating. It's kind of like this holy grail idea where you can beat the market or just find really great companies to invest in. Um, that said, my focus is really elsewhere. And so I'm still like pretty involved, you know, in Thrive, operating Thrive. And that's really, I, I just love it. And so um, I called it occasional ventures because it's really descriptive of like where that organization is at. So I have like, you know, people who help me with finance and the legal side and stuff. I even do diligence and we do very few deals. Um, I see a lot of deals, but I only really pick, you know, a couple companies a year that I'm willing to invest in. And then the other piece of it, I think, is um, the front end, you know, the website for that, uh, that organization is mostly talking about BC or like private equity style investments that we've done. But the reality is I invest across all different asset classes. So we have stocks. Uh, investments in different types of real estate, um, investments in operating companies, treasury bonds, GICs, like whatever it is, boring stuff. Um, and frankly, I'm really happy about that. I get to learn about these different sectors and industries. Um, and over time, hopefully, you know, that all grows. But that's really like where I'm at. So yeah, occasional ventures is like uh, an ironic name for this like kind of not so serious investment for me that I started, whether it becomes something, you know, more serious for me later, it's certainly a possibility, but for now, um, it's my hobby, but, but like also, to... sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I'd like to circle back to, to thrive just for one second there. Cause I find it very rare that a founder 
will be building their business. You know, you're going into your second decade now of building Thrive. So I wonder if there's any, like, are there nuances there to like building something for that long? How do you have that staying power and like just that commitment and that interest in the business? Is it just because it's in a dynamic space and it's kind of always changing? You're always learning. I'm just always curious of people that do things for a long time and do them well for a long time and just are going to keep doing them for a long time. And so I think what you were about to say there is that it's unusual to see a founder, you know, remain in their business for so long. And it's interesting because I think that's like a relatively new way of looking at things. I think it was very common historically for like people's trades-based businesses or their family businesses to be passed down, you know, from generation to generation. And you had these like families that would like run organizations for a long time. Uh, like Rogers, you know, stuff like that. Those That family still controls that business. Um, these days, the idea of a quick exit um, is, I think, new. And so uh, to me, you know, there's a couple things. So I was never concerned with the financial outcome in terms of exit of the company. I started doing this because I love it. I really, really enjoy it. So when I am quote working, it doesn't feel like work. I just get a lot of satisfaction out of what I do. So I'm happy at what I do. And so to me, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. I think. Um, the other piece is that if I had been doing the same thing within the organization for this long, I'd be bored to tears. But the reality is that I my role has changed a lot. So. At first, I was doing all the work and implementation, all the client meetings and stuff. Then it evolved to me almost having like more of a, you know, I was the CEO, but um, more of an administrative capacity where I'm like, well, we need a department here and we need a department here. And, uh, you know, I'm dealing with this fire and this fire and this problem and this problem and stuff like that. Uh, eventually, I hung up my CEO hat altogether. That was an interesting process. Um, and you know, ended up really at this point, other than being the chairperson, um, I get to be involved in different aspects of the company that I think are fun and cool. So I get to be an entrepreneur within my own like company platform and environment. And so, you know, we're launching new services. Uh, I'm often involved in putting together new deals that we're doing. So like I speak to clients, you know, when considering working with us um, and I find that stuff really cool. And so and as I mentioned, you know, occasional ventures, I get to take, uh, you know, some of the success from that and turn it into an investment in other businesses. And so, and I'm on the board of a couple of different businesses. So I think that um, those conditions have allowed me to kind of like stay put in the business. But I also realized that like, as I mentioned, the only constant in life is change. I don't know if I said it that way, but I said, I've talked a little bit about change in this podcast and I'm sure things will, you know, happen and come into view that are interesting. And so does it mean that I, I won't work at Thrive? No, that I don't see new and interesting opportunities as mutually exclusive to one thing. I think I'm just in this place where I get to call the shots with like my current, you know, career setup. So it, in a nice way, like. I don't necessarily have a boss right now. My clients are my boss, but at the same time, you know, I can kind of like work when I want to work on the things that I want to. There's always interesting opportunities that I can evaluate and put time in. And so that's my story as to why I've been enabled, I would say, to kind of stay involved at this really cool operating company that 
provide services to other really interesting companies for so long. You mentioned hanging up the CEO hat there and, you know, like transitioning from, you know, being the only person to being the CEO to being the chair. Has that always been comfortable for you? Has there been times when you're like, hey, this is this business is sort of like my baby and I'm, you know, giving up aspects of it. I'm just curious, like what that process has been like. Have you had kind of mentors or a coach or just informal things just helping you along there with advice or has it been very comfortable for you to do that? So I'll start with the last part first. I've had uh, mentors for sure in my career, but it tended to be earlier on in my career where like, you know, you work for someone, they've been in their business, whatever that was for 30 years and they can teach you some stuff. Eventually it became learning about, you know, reality from your peers. So, you know, my mentors became my peers. There was no longer this like top-down relationship. Um, I meet all kinds of business people by virtue of what I do. And I have a network of like friends who often tend to be owners or founders of businesses. And so we can talk a lot about the commonalities or the challenges that we're facing. And that's always helpful. Um, I, there was a funny quote I read on Twitter a while ago and I can't remember who it was, but they were saying every business is on fire from the inside. And it's like, it's just so true. Like, um, there are days and weeks and months that are tough in business, but you know, you have to take a step back and be like, I'm having a really bad day, but, but this is still a wonderful business. And like, you know, I get through this and I don't know if it'll get better or worse first, but it will change type thing. It's find that like outlook on life and, and work to be quite comforting actually. And then you touched on something that I think is fascinating as an analogy of founder and the, the business that they start. I very much at times early on felt that Thrive was my baby, I think, as you put, but it's interesting because now I actually have like kids. You know, when I started the company, I didn't. And with, or with, a, with your kids, you know, they're born and you need to do everything for them at first. And so I, you know, you're feeding them, you're changing their diapers, you're putting them to bed, you're teaching them how to sleep properly and all of these things. Then eventually they start to crawl, you know, and they start to take a bottle and then eventually they walk and eventually maybe they get, you know, older and they go off to school during the day. And then eventually you're like, Hey, like, I'm going to help you with this. And they're like, no, I'm going to do it myself. And then one day. They go off to college and they learn their own craft maybe and get their first job. And then one day beyond that, they get married and like lead their own lives. And they only check in with you every so often. And that's like so analogous to starting a company, right? At first you start a company, it, you need to do everything for it. It poops on you. Like it's like all kinds of crazy stuff happens. And then one day you're like looking at it and it's like standing on the altar and you're like, wow, you, you're going to go off and do your own thing. That's kind of where Thrive is at. And so in other words, like as, you know, a board member, um, yes, I'm operational in a few capacities, but Thrive, like I don't really run Thrive. Like Thrive has really well-built apartments that are super effective at what they do. And like, I might weigh in on things, but I'm not going to like make decisions for a vice president that I've hired. You know what I mean? Like it's their job to do that. And I want to empower them to do that. And so, um, so the analogy is actually a really good one in terms of like, you know, all of that. And I think that, um, on an emotional level, 
uh, it's different than having a real child, right? Like I'm very professional in terms of like my relationship with the company. And I think that like, I have a deep love and affection for the company and what it does. But I also realize that, you know, um, uh, it's not, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to go off and do its own things. And I have my own life that is separate from Thrive. And those two things will, you know, probably go on in parallel for a bit and then eventually be separate. I don't know. Being a founder yourself, you know, mainly based in Vancouver the whole time, being an investor now in other Canadian founders, Canadian tech, business, et cetera. What are your thoughts on the current business tech landscape? You know, what are some things that we could be doing better? Is it like a mindset shift? Is it other things that we could be working on? Do you have any kind of opinions on that? I do. So I think there's a lot that's going on right in in like uh, in Canada when it comes to tech. And that's evidenced by some really wonderful, you know, tech companies that have like emerged here. But I also think that Canada, you know, we there's so much talent in this country um, and we innovate a great deal. Like we created smartphones, you know, we created companies like Shopify and Hootsuite and, and whatnot. And there's like a whole myriad of other interesting companies that, or innovation, I should say, that's happened here. What I often see though, is that the innovator doesn't always win the final battle. So uh, it's great to be first, but in a lot of cases, like our American counterparts are super industrious and create very fierce competitors. They have probably more funding and just access to more talent in their native market. And so um, it becomes difficult for Canadian companies to like, go toe-to-toe in the long term with them. Um, so, you know, it's just an observation. I don't necessarily know what the solution is to that but i think it's important that when people start companies here that get big that they don't become overconfident that that's always going to continue and i think uh you know blackberry is actually a great example of this i think the folks who you know started and ran blackberry probably felt like their company was going to be a hundred year company and you know these days like it doesn't exist really. Like it does, I think they build software, but it's certainly not a, a leader in the smartphone sector. And so um, like they stopped supporting their own operating system a few years ago type thing. And uh, so this is a bit of a tale that we have to you know, tell ourselves and we can't just assume that it's going to be the same for us as it is for our American counterparts. It's different down there, you know? And so we have to recognize that. And if we want to build these big global or international companies that have some staying power. Um, those are things that need to be like taught in entrepreneurial circles and venture circles in, in Canada. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. And my first question would be, what is your favorite book? If you can't pick a favorite because of Andrew's, all his recommendations, which is <laughs> something, what's something you're currently reading that you, that you yeah. like right now? This might be like a snooze fest for, for the people as they hear, but so I'm not going to say I have a favorite book. I tend, my favorite book tends to often be what I'm reading right now because it's representative of like a topic that I'm fascinated in. So a long time ago, I read the Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs biography. And I was like reflecting on that, you know, a few weeks ago and I was like, you know, he's, he's about to release a book on Elon Musk. He's a great writer. Um, what else is he written about? And so. I picked up the Walter Isaacson Benjamin Franklin 
biography, which I haven't finished yet, but I'm like pretty deep into it. And it's amazing. Like it, the, firstly, what strikes me is some of the parallels between like 17th, you know, 18th century colonial America and like the modern time in terms of how people were thinking and some of the, you know, problems that they were trying to solve. But then I'm also just kind of astounded by like this history lesson in what life was like back then. So like, for instance, you know, in 1700, how many children do you think like a 50 year old man might have in Boston, colonial Boston? Six, seven, maybe? 20. And so, but the reality is like, you know, there's very few uh, women who would have been able to like mother 20 children. I know that it's happened before, but I think that's like, you know, you have to be the Michael Jordan of like being pregnant, big thing. Like it's, it's, it's hard on your body. And so um, the reality, what I learned is that in colonial Boston around that time, the infant mortality rate was 25%. And what you don't hear about that much is that the mother's mortality rate wasn't too far, far off from that. And so, um, you know, people were in traditional gender roles. Um, the man would go out to work and the woman would like, you know, bear children and look after the household. And every fourth or fifth child, the likelihood of her passing was really, really high. And so, uh, someone in their 50s would have had, you know, three to four five marriages at that point, which today is like kind of inconceivable, like at least for those reasons. And so anyway, going back to your point, uh, I'm fascinated when I learn stuff like that because it gives me perspective on how much things have changed. Um, and then it makes me think about 300 years from now, when people look back at our behavior and the way we live right now, are they going to be aghast and be like, oh my God, I can't believe they used plastic or like, oh my God, I can't believe they walked around with gas masks on because of X, Y, and Z. Or like, I have no idea what they'll think, but, but it's obvious that they will look at us in a similar way to the way that I'm discussing like colonial Americans in 1700, right? And so... Uh, it gives you a lot of perspective. And for that reason, I would say it's like, you know, a really interesting book that I'm reading. What are you most excited about in the next 12 months, personally and professionally? So I have a lot. So just you know, on a personal level, I'm really excited about my kids right now. They're, they're very, very young. And I'm just at this stage where I'm in awe constantly about... I, Emily learning how to walk or Ollie learning how to play guitar, or like whatever it is. So these are like very simple things that I think are really important to appreciate. I tend to get more excited about like the simple things in life than these like grandiose things. Like if I did a deal and I make $10 million off of it or something, I, I would probably be less excited about that than my daughter's first steps, you know, and that's just my personal disposition. Uh, professionally, you know, I would say that uh, so Thrive is kind of front and center. So first of all, there's a few investments that I think are really exciting that I'm a part of. And so um, you mentioned Rob's company. That's one of them. I'm, I'm an investor in SpaceX through a secondary. So it's not like I led like a multi-billion dollar round of financing, but some which way I found my way into a bunch of, you know, a meaningful chunk of SpaceX stock. And I'm just really pumped about what they're doing. And then Thrive is just very well positioned right now in terms of its own market. And so we're seeing, as always, a lot of change 
Um, we're seeing a lot of demand for services. Um, we're thinking a few steps ahead in terms of like what our strategy will be as we continue to grow through this market. And I'm really energized by those plans. And so all of that, you know, combines to represent what I'm excited about. How do you deal with hard times? Being, being a founder is hard, being a parent is hard. And we, you know, we've had this theme of change throughout the the podcast here. Um, other than changes, are there some tactics or things that you do that can help with difficult times? Yeah, I think so. I think setting your expectations is important, right? Like there are people who most humans would view as wildly successful um, who seem to be miserable. So like money isn't going to make you happy. Being that a titan won't make you happy. It seems to me that like people are the things that make other humans happy in a lot of ways. You know, you have to have your basic needs met, but uh, anyone who has friends, a relationship, a family, a work, company, whatever you want to call it, is going to go through difficult moments, but not everybody is super transparent and is willing to like share that with, with the world, right? And I think that my basic expectation is that life is hard at times. Um, everyone, like if you feel like you're having a tough day, congratulations, you're in very good company because so is everybody else, one or another. I try not to, I think when I was younger and maybe like a less mature version of myself, I would get like depressed when things were really rough. These days, I see it as like a phase that I'm going through. So, um, even if there's an extended period where like, you know, things are difficult, I kind of am like, okay, like, I'm just going to own this. It sucks, right? But eventually things will change and they will get better and something will be on the other side of this. And they might even get worse before they get better. I can probably count on that. And so I tend to just put one foot in front of the other, you know, and, and, and coach myself in this regard. Um, you just have to keep going, you know, when the going gets tough, I guess. Uh, there's some funny quotes around that, I think. But, uh, but that's kind of how I see it. So I think you just have to like have a degree whether you're innately resilient or you teach yourself to be resilient, that's the only way that you'll actually achieve success and happiness in life by like not letting the stuff that goes wrong get you down. That's all the questions left from me. I'd just like to open up the mic to you if you want to chat about uh, you know, Thrive, Occasional Ventures, or just anything you'd want to chat about before we wrap it up. Well, firstly, I'm... I'm Really excited that you invited me onto your show. And, uh, you know, for, for whoever's listening, Evan sent me kind of like a preamble of like different topics to talk about and stuff. And I, I found them very insightful. Like, I think you obviously do your research on different people that you're interviewing. So I really appreciated that. I also think that like you as the host, you know, you probably get asked questions less in this format than you should. I think what you're doing is super interesting. And so I would just say that like, you know, as a follow-up to this, eventually, I would love to uh, swap seats with you and just grill you on the interesting points of your life because here you are and you're, you know, you've had a pretty interesting list of guests. Um, how did you do that? Like, why is it that people are like, yes, Evan, I, I've never met you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this show. 
Um, what is it that you know, has got you to where you're at? And I think there's a lot to talk about there. So I think that like in a future episode, I would just say that I think you need to be a guest on the show and have someone uh, interview you. I think that's a great idea. And if, if you'd like to do that, that'd be awesome. But I, I that's an interesting idea. I, I would definitely, uh, I'll definitely look into that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds great. I, I'm totally up for it. When you think you're ready. <laughs> awesome. No, we'll, we'll make that happen for sure. Um, Jonathan, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the time. Uh, so insightful. And I know we covered a lot of different things and uh, just so awesome to see what you built with Thrive based in Vancouver and just, it's amazing. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.